and I am an alcoholic. And I'm very proud to stand here before you tonight and tell you that I am a sober woman alcoholic. I would like to have the hands of the newcomers that are here tonight. Would you please raise your hands? Oh, great. I'm glad to know, and I know that you are, that you've got a problem. And if alcoholism is your problem, we have a solution. We have a solution. And this book tells us about a planned action that we have taken that has helped us to recover from alcoholism. We have recovered. We have found an answer to our drink problem. However, we are not cured. What we have found is a daily reprieve contingent upon our spiritual condition. And I know that the word recovered has a lot of controversy in our part of the country. And um, I'm, I'm glad that, you know, that I read the rest of that because I was against that. And I keep hearing people saying, we are recovering. Well, you know, we are recovering in the beginning. But those of us who have been here, even for a short while, once you have started to apply the principles of this program, you too will find that you have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body and that you have solved your drink problem on a daily basis, on a daily basis. And I think that that was very important for me to learn. Now, you know, I want to talk program. I like to talk book, and I love to talk. So the first thing I want to do is to thank the committee for inviting me here tonight. It's always such an honor for me to be invited. And the other thing is, is that I think that I would be remiss in not thanking the people that come here to tape for these uh, conferences, roundups, and conventions, because it's because of them that our message has been able to be carried into many of the hospitals and institutions and into the homes of the people that are ill and that are not able to get out and get to meetings. So thank you, tape recorders and the committee, for my being here and sharing. As most of you can tell by now, I don't speak English, I speak Southern. I've lived in California for a while now, but I really come from Florida. Somebody come up to me after a meeting one night, and they said, I thought you said you come from the south, and I don't know how damn far south you can get. But uh, anyway, I um, briefly, uh, how can I do it briefly? Uh, I remembered my daddy saying at the supper table one night, he said, I had two older brothers, and we were sitting there, and he said, when... When you kids get old enough to go to work and earn your own money and can buy your own cigarettes and your own booze, as far as I'm concerned, you're old enough to drink and smoke. Well, hell, needless to say, I went, to, uh, you know, started drinking and smoking, and I went to work at a real early age, you know, to get going there. Now, what ha really happened uh, was that the war come along. And for any of you young people that are here, that was the Second World War, not the first one. I want you to know that. You know, we're going to get that one straight right off. Anyway, uh, so, um, uh, you know, it, in that Second World War, it, it was like the whole world just went on a party, and all I did was just join the party. The only thing was, is when the party was over, I didn't go home, and I see a lot of people here didn't either, huh? <laughs> uh, I'm still a party girl, and I love to go to parties, you know, and the um, only thing is, is I don't drink today. That's the only difference. Otherwise, I just have myself a wonderful time. But uh, I started drinking, uh, no particular reason, it was just because everybody else was, and it was, you know, I just did it. And uh, by the time I was 16, I was 13 at that time, by the time I was 16, I was a blackout drinker. Uh, I was also pregnant and married, just in that order. Uh, <laughs> in my days, nice girls didn't do those things, but heck, from the way the world's going today, you know, if you've got to get married, I guess getting pregnant's a good reason as any. Um, either that or going on welfare. It's what they do down in our part of the country anyway. Um, anyway, you know, remember I told you I was a blackout drinker. Would you believe me if I tell you I was almost four months pregnant for even knew I'd been had? 
<laughs> I kid you not, that's the God's truth. Uh, I was working as a waitress at the time, and uh, uh, I'd go serve a, a breakfast, and I'd come back, and I'd go throw up, you know. And I'd come back out, and I'd serve another breakfast, and then I'd go throw up again. And the boss was watching the action, and he'd come over and told me he didn't think it was too conducive to good business, you know, and suggested that I see a doctor. And we had family doctors then, so I did. I went in to see him. And uh, he told me, he said, now, Beverly, he said, when you finish dressing, I want to see you in my office. Well, I figured I had flu, doesn't everybody on Monday morning? And anyway, so I went in after I dressed, and he was sitting in that big old oak chair of his, and he leaned back in, and he folded his arms up, you know, and he sat there, and he looked at me for a few minutes, you know, and he leaned over his desk, and he said, Beverly, you are pregnant. Well, now, I thought about that for a few minutes, and I leaned back over that desk, and I looked him right straight in the eye, and I said, Dr. Moses, I can't be. I've never been with a man. <laughs> well, now, he thought about that one for a few minutes. <laughs> and he just leaned back over that table and assured me I was not the second Virgin Mary. <laughs> I was real sorry to hear that. Anyway, I did marry this young man, and I lost that first child, and I didn't get pregnant again for another six years. And I had a beautiful daughter at that time, and uh, he was a drunk. I mean, he was a real bad drunk. At 21, he was having tremors, hallucinations. You know, he, he, he always had bugs climbing all over him. And the only time I ever seen him was when he was coming off of it with these bugs climbing all over him, and, and then he wanted my help, you know. We alcoholics don't mind getting drunk in the gutter. We just don't like sobering up there. You know, and we don't marry wives or husbands. We marry keepers, you know, somebody to take care of us when we come off of it. But anyway, uh, it, was, it was just a real bad marriage, and I left this man because the doctor had told me, as I had gone in in my usual, uh, with my nose sitting sideways on the face and a couple of black eyes, you know, and it was, it was that kind of a marriage. And uh, I want you to know that I wasn't drinking too much at that time. And the main reason was is that I never had any money because he never brought any home. He always drank it all up. So, uh, unfortunately, I didn't get to drink. But I left him because I did not want my child raised in that kind of a drunken atmosphere. Well, I love that every time I think about it and where I am today. But anyway... Um, my mother sent me, I was in Florida at the time, of course, and my mother sent me, she was out here in California, a one-way ticket. No money, just a one-way ticket. My mama was very smart. And anyway, I took my baby, who was nine months old at that time, came out to California here, and I went back to what I considered my social drinking. <coughs> now, uh, one thing I'd learned out of that marriage is you don't go to man, uh, bed with a man first, you marry them first. And I'm telling you, by the time that little child was four years old, it had been a long, dry summer. I kid you not. And I decided about that time she needed a father. And along about that same time, I met this beautiful Irish Catholic young man. Now, we all know that all Irish Catholics are alcoholics. They're all here in Alcoholics Anonymous. Believe me when I tell you, I married the only one that didn't drink. I mean, this boy didn't drink. And I was in the throes of alcoholism at this time, and he came home one night. We'd been married less than a year. And he came home one night, and he looked down at me, and he said, Honey, I love you very much. But he said, Either you're going to have to give up this drinking, or I'm going to have to go. Well, I said goodbye to Paul. <laughs> and Mama and I were back together again. And we were just got home from work one night, and I put the baby to bed, and she looked over at me and she said, you know, honey, she said, I think we ought to get ourselves some kind of a business to ensure my daughter a more secure future. And it sounded like a terrific idea to me. And I had a little bit of cash and Mama had a AAA credit rating. So we did. We got a business. A liquor store. <laughs> <laughs> now, also along about this time, I was, as I said, I was in the throes of alcoholism. I was into the morning drink. And uh, what was beginning to happen, though, instead of getting... Well, with a morning drink, I was beginning to get drunk all over again. I see some head shaking, so I know some of you have been there, too. And anyway, uh, I, I um, long about this same time, I fell in love again. Well, hell, what I was really doing was falling in heat, you know. It was love to me, you know. It was all I knew. And this young man introduced me to a thing called the barley sandwich. Any of you people in here know what a barley sandwich is? 
You're close to Canada. You should know. This guy was from Calgary. Anyway, a barley sandwich with beer and tomato juice. And see, it, it, it filled two purposes. You know, I got my booze and the vitamins at the same time. Because I wasn't eating very much along about that time. And what it did was it sort of slid me into the day. Honey, you look like it doesn't taste good. i got to tell you, it didn't, you know, but it worked. And it was the only consistent thing that I had going in my life at that time. I mean, jobs were coming and going. Friends were coming and going. Husbands were coming and going. Alcohol was consistent. It worked for me. And anyway, so uh, I did marry again. And... Uh, Along about a year later, I began to have some of the darndest, funniest symptoms you ever seen. Uh, I was crying one day, didn't even know I was crying. But you see, I always had a fixer. And also, i got to tell you that drunk or sober, two things in my life have always been my motivators. And that has been fear and pain. Fear and pain will motivate me into taking some kind of an action, right, wrong, or indifferent. I will move. And when I... Walked in and looked in the mirror and seen, I wasn't just crying, it was like somebody had turned on two water faucets. And anyway, I looked in the mirror and I seen that and I thought, my God, you know, and it really scared me. And, but I went in, I had my fixer and that was, you know, some booze. And I walked on into the bar, poured myself a couple of hookers and downed them, you know, and the water just cut right off, you know, and I went on in, got dressed, went on to work. I got home that afternoon. Went to walk into the living room, into the house, and all of a sudden my stomach started jumping, and the next thing I knew, my whole body was a jerking and a jiving, and and I scared the living daylight out of me, you know. And I knew what I needed, you know, was my fixer, but it was at the back end of the house, back in the bar there, and I finally got myself jerked in the right direction and just hopped right on in there, you know. And I went to get a, a drink and and. Uh, Broke the top off of the bottle, trying to pour it into the glass, plus the glass. Uh, then I, uh, I, I just didn't know what in the world to do because I knew I had to get this booze in me to get this stopped, whatever it was. And I looked down and I spied a champagne glass. Now, not a brandy snifter, but a champagne glass that had been given to us by one of the liquor dealers. And it was a huge round top. And I finally got some booze poured in that. It was sitting on the coffee table, and I got down on my knees, you know, and I started slurping that stuff up, you know. And my body began to calm down, and the nerves began to calm down, and, and I stopped shaking, you know. And I finally was able to pour some in a glass in about a half an hour or so, and, and you know, and got some more of it down me, you know. And I thought, damn, boy, what was that? And uh, But I went on into the kitchen, started fixing supper, you know, and went on about my business, see, because it took care of it. That booze took care of anything that was the matter with me, booze took care of. Now, I come home a couple of days later from work, laid down across the bed to go to sleep and take a little nap before dinner time. And the next thing I knew, I woke up, I was on the floor, had wet all over myself, had mucus all in my hair. You know, I was not really a pretty drunk at times. I started out pretty, I just couldn't end up that way, you know. But anyway, uh, I was vaguely aware that this was not the first time something like this had happened to me. And uh, I was filled with fear, just absolutely filled with fear. And I went into the bar to get my fixer, and I poured a couple of them down me, and I was still scared to death, you know. And I poured a couple more down, and it wasn't working for me. It wasn't taking away the fear and the pain that I had. So I called the doctor, and he said, don't try to drive, grab a cab, and get over here immediately, and I did. And what happened was that they sent me through all kinds of tests and stuff, and the last last doctor I seen that day was down in the uh, psychiatric department, and he informed me that I was having epileptic seizures, and that, sure, you know what I was having with alcoholic convulsions, you know. What did they know? And, and that I was in the midst of a nervous breakdown, and that's how I got out to UCLA and uh, in the NPI section out there. That's the nut ward for any of you who don't know what that is and haven't been there yet, but I see a few drinks, so I know some of you have been there. And anyway, I spent six months in there, you know, getting cured for my epileptic seizures because it was amazing I wasn't drinking in there, you know, and I didn't have but one or two more after I got there. And so they figured they'd cured me, you know. And uh, anyway... Uh, we had gone out on one of these little day trips they let you on occasionally if you've been on your good behavior. And uh, it was aboard a fishing boat. And they were serving some beer aboard the boat. And um, 
I seen some of the other patients drinking it, and although I knew it was against rules, I figured, you know, if they could get by with it, I could too, so needless to say, I had a few. Needless to say, by the time we got back to the hospital that night, I was quite drunk. And they kept me down below and fed me and wasted a little bit of time trying to sober me up enough to get me back up on the ward, and they did, and they took me up there. And we had this new patient up there on the ward, and she wasn't like the rest of us. She was being treated for something I'd never heard of before. And anyway, she followed me into my room, and she looked over at me, and she said, Beverly, I think you're an alcoholic. Well, now, I want you to know I have never been so insulted in my life. And I told her in no uncertain terms that she needn't lay her thing on me, that by God, I was crazy, you know. <laughs> and I meant it, you know, whatever this thing was called alcoholic, you know, I was so insulted. In fact, I was so insulted, I told my psychiatrist about it the next day when I seen him. And I said, now, Dr. Bellantyne, what do you think about that? He just looked at me and he shook his head and he said, no, Beverly, he said, if you can just learn to cope with your problems, you know, and face reality. Well, hell, I had been facing it, you know, until they got me in there where I couldn't get any booze. I mean, booze was my way of facing reality and coping with problems. Anyway, uh, they had recommended that I go into private uh, psychiatric um, uh, care, you know, uh, when I was released from there. And... Uh, you know, he was the boss, and when he said I didn't have any problems, it sounded right to me, so I was continuing to drink for another three and a half years. Now, my moment of clarity is in the home that I am still in today, in Chatsworth. And uh, I remember I was sitting in the den. My daughter was away for the weekend, and I was waiting for my then husband to come home from work. And he was about four or five hours late. And we girls know where you guys are when you're coming home, you know, four or five hours late from work. Sure we do, don't we, honey? They're out with her, aren't they? The ones who understand them, right? Don't laugh, honey, because some of us were the ones who understood them. (laughs) You betcha. Yeah, it's true I understood. Anyway, I had waited as long as I could, and I decided I'd have a drink. You know how we are. Don't have... One or two. And anyway, a few hours later, he came home from work, and he walked over, and he looked down at me, and he said, you're drunk, and I'm not going to take you anywhere. And with that, he went on up into the bedroom and passed out. Now, I remember fixing myself another drink, and I walked up into the kitchen from the den, and I looked out the window, and our kitchen window faces the street. And out in our driveway, there was two brand-new cars sitting out there. And I walked through my home, and it was a brand-new home at that time, and newly decorated from Sloan's over in Beverly Hills. You know, it was the kind of a home that if you opened up the book of the Better Homes and Gardens, you'd have seen one similar to it in that book. And I walked on out into the backyard, and it was beautifully landscaped and well-manicured. You know, and it was kind of a yard that belonged in the home that belonged in the book of the Better Homes and Gardens. And if you could have seen us as a family, we were that family. That's what we presented to the world out there. That belonged in that yard, that belonged in that home, that belonged in that book of the better homes and gardens, you know. And yet I remember as I stood there that night and I looked up and I cried out, Why God, why now? When I've got everything that I have always wanted all of my life, why do I want to die? And you know, I couldn't have told you that night, but tonight I can. You see, what good is all you've got, all of those material things, when there is no joy in them? And alcohol had taken all of the joy out of my life. It had taken me into a living hell of which I could find no way out of. No way out of at all. I think that Christ said something like that when he said, What profits the man who gains the world and then loses his very soul? And you see, that's what had happened to me. And I walked on back down to the den that night, and I fixed myself another drink. And as I sat there with that drink in my hand for the first time since I was 13 years old, I knew that it wasn't the family, the friends, the job, the husbands, or any of those other things that I had always blamed my troubles on. It was right there in that glass. It was that booze that I was drinking. You'd think after all that time that I would have recognized it before then, but I didn't. But at that very moment, when I knew it was the alcohol that was killing me, I knew if I quit drinking, I was going to die. But I also knew if I kept on drinking, I was going to die. So what do you do when you can't drink anymore and you can't drink any less? You know, I knew the only thing to do was to kill myself, and that's what I did. 
I woke up three and a half days later. I say I woke up. Hell, it came too. You know, no Alfie ever wakes up. And I had tubes out my nose, my throat, both arms and both ankles. And, of course, the first question we ask when we come to, where am I? You know. And there was a policeman standing over in the doorway. And he hollered over to me. He must have heard me mumbling. And he said, you're in County General Hospital. And my next question was, how did I get here? You know, it's a long ways from Chatsworth. We have money. We have medical insurance. And he walked over and he looked down at me with the most disgusted look on his face. I'll never forget the look on his face. And he said, lady, he said, committing suicide is against the law. Well, now, I didn't know that. I might not have done it, you know. <laughs> There's another member of, uh, of, of our uh, fellowship that lives down in that area. And he sits on the appellate court today. And he came over to me one time after I had given a talk, and he says, Beverly, he said you gave a wonderful talk, but he said you made one little mistake. I'd like to have you correct it. He said, committing suicide or attempting suicide is, is, committing suicide is not against the law. It's attempting suicide that's against the law. Well, now, you know, that made more sense, really, you know, when I got thinking about it. But um, anyway, it, it was a little confusing to me at the time. But my psychiatrist that I had been going to for three and a half years sent word that he wanted to see me. They put you on hold. They think there's something the matter with you when you do things like that. And anyway, he had uh, sent word to my doctor that as soon as I was released, he wanted to see me immediately. He did not want me to go home. He wanted me to come directly to his office upon release, and which I did. And when I got there, you know, uh, he said to me something I'll never forget. He said, Beverly, you need help, and you need it desperately. And he said, I can't help you. And he said, here is the number of Alcoholics Anonymous. Will you call them? Well, I already knew it wasn't going to work because Lenore had told me that she had been to AA three times. And if you could have seen Lenore, you knew it didn't work. (laughs) You know, and, and the next thought I had... Now, I never voiced my thoughts, but the next thought I had was I was a little bit angry, you know, because I was thinking, you know, I've been coming to you for almost three and a half years at $60 a whack, at sometimes at three times a week, I have almost drank myself to death, during near killed myself, and you got the nerve to stand there and tell me you can't help me? You know, I was a little upset, but I didn't say anything. I went home, and I made that call. Now... I was very grateful that whoever answered that phone, and I don't know to this day, she didn't ask me if I was an alcoholic, because I didn't know what an alcoholic was. And she said to me, Beverly, she said, are you having a problem drinking alcohol? And I said, lady, I sure am. And she said, well, are you drinking right now? And I looked around, and I didn't see anything close by, and I said, no, I don't think so, not right at the moment. And she said, can you hold off for a little while? I'd like to send somebody out to talk to you. And I thought about it for a second. I said, well, if you'll make it quick. I was getting real thirsty. And anyway, I couldn't hardly wait for whoever it was that was going to come to get there because I wanted to tell them all about that guy I was married to, you know. And then I knew they'd understand why I had to drink. Well, I want you to know these two women came to my door. They came in there, and they were there for almost two hours. I never got to tell them anything while they were there, every time I'd start to tell them about me, they'd start talking to each other about themselves. You talk about selfish and self-centered. I mean, they were it. Anyway, they got up to leave. They got over to the door. They turned around to me as if I was some kind of an afterthought. And they said, oh, by the way, honey, we want you to be dressed and ready to go at 8 o'clock. We're going to take you to a meeting. I mean, they never even asked me if I wanted to go. Anyway, they came... And we went. And from now on, I'm going to talk about a book here that's called Alcoholics Anonymous. This is a book written by alcoholics, for alcoholics, about alcoholism. It says in this book that we have found a way out of which we can all join in in brotherly and harmonious action. And this book carries that message. If you are an alcoholic and have alcoholism. Now, 
First thing I heard when I got to a meeting was get a sponsor. So I did. I got me a sponsor. I didn't know what they were for, but I got one, you know. And you know, she was one of those kind of sponsors that says, Thou shall have no other gods before me. I mean, <laughs> y'all got some of those here too, huh? She was a whip. I kid you not. And the next thing I know, I heard was to buy a book. So I did. You know, I did whatever I was told, and I bought a book. I brought it home. I gave it the place of honor, right in the middle of the coffee table in the living room. Right there in the middle of the coffee table, right in front of God and everybody. Well, when I went to more meetings, they said, get pamphlets, take them home and read them. So I did. I brought them home, and I placed them all around that big book there in the coffee table in the living room. And I went and I got some more pamphlets and I brought them home and I read them and I placed them on the ends of the couches, on the, on the stands at the end. And I went to more meetings and I got more pamphlets and I brought them home and I put them on the nightstand on his side of the bed. <laughs> well, you know, my sponsor called me up one day and she said, Beverly, I'm coming over to talk to you. Now, when she said she was coming to talk to me, that's exactly what she meant, because she got me in a meeting one time, and she said, now, Beverly, if by mistake they should call on you to share, she said, you stand up, you give them your name and your illness, and you sit down and shut up, because, honey, that's all you know. (laughs) So when she said she was coming to talk to me, I knew that's what she meant. I knew to sit down, shut up, and listen, you know. And anyway, you know where she plopped her little butt when she came over, right in the middle of my couch, right there in front of that coffee table where my big book was. She looked over at it, and she looked down at me, and she looked back over, and she reached, and she wiped the dust off of it, you know. And she handed it down to me, and she says, now, here, honey, read it. Well, now, nobody had said read it. They just said bye, you know. (laughs) Well, I started reading this book. You know, I've got a couple of pet peeves, and I want to get rid of one of them. In fact, I was talking with somebody the other night about this particular person, and I won't mention Clancy's name. (laughs) When I was new, you know how you are when you're new, and and these speakers get up like I'm doing today, you know, and God, I looked up at him like he was some kind of a God, you know, and any and all of them, not just him. And uh, I thought they they had all the answers, you know, and, and they were saved. They were cured, you know. And anyway, he got up to the podium one night, and you know how he does, he crosses those arms and pokes that lip out, you know, and he said, you can work this program any way you want to. Well, now, I had been reading this book, and I don't know what book he was reading, but that's not what my book said, you know, and and I went back in and I looked it up when I got home, and sure enough, this is what it said. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. There's no S on path, and that led me to believe there's only one path in this program to follow. Well, I got to thinking about that, and I thought, what path is it? You know, what is that path? I didn't know. God, I'm new. You know, I don't know the language around here. And anyway, I called my sponsor up, and the reason I called her, because I knew I was going to get drunk if I didn't find the answer. I had to know what I was supposed to be doing. And I was... You know, just terribly upset, and I called her up, and she listened to me for a couple of seconds, which was, you know, good for her, and and she finally said, hold, Beth, stop, right now. She said, honey, she said, read the book. The answers are in the book. You ever had them do that to you when you were just flying up your own ass? You know, just want to let them have it, you know. I hope I'm not offensive with any of the language I use here. (laughs) I know that they tell people not to use bad language, you know, that we're supposed to get well and be examples to the new people, but I didn't cuss when I came here to you people. (laughs) I didn't. That's the God's truth, you know. Worst thing I could think of was hell, you know. And uh, anyway, uh, I've learned how to express myself since being here, <laughs> and that's an improvement for me. Anyway, I, uh, uh, she, I, I, if you, the, those that are new here, I want to tell you, if you've got a sponsor that tells you to read the book, I want to tell you why they tell you to read the book. They know the answers in the book, they just don't know where it is in the book, you know. <laughs> they got you reading the whole damn book. Smart fellows they are. Anyway, 
so I got to think about that, so I started reading the book then. And let me tell you what I found in there that it says about this path. It says, a lack of power is our dilemma. And to find this power greater than ourselves is exactly what this book is all about. Now, I've seen some people talking back there, and I know you didn't hear me. And I know that there's a lot of people that didn't want to hear me. So watch my lips. I'm going to repeat it, okay? Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. A lack of power is our dilemma. And to find this power greater than ourselves that will solve our problem is exactly what this book is all about. Now, it uses words like exactly, precisely, absolutely, specifically. It even goes on to say it gives us clear-cut directions. And I mean, that doesn't leave any room for the fertile imagination of an alky to run around in. I mean, it's got you right by the you-know-where's. What? I'm glad to know y'all know. <laughs> anyway, I started going through this book. Now, you know, one of the things that my sponsor had told me, I don't know when I'm supposed to stop. When I get to the end, I guess. <laughs> I may never get there. Don't laugh. (laughs) Anyway, you know, uh, one of the things that she told me when I was new, she said, Beverly, she said, I want you to go to a woman's stag meeting. A woman's stag meeting? You mean one of those PTA meetings with those gossiping, backstabbing bitches? (laughs) Y'all got some of those here too, huh? (laughs) She said, yeah. I said, Eunice, I ain't going. She said, yeah, you are, honey. Well, knowing Eunice, I went. <laughs> and I went into that PTA meeting with those gossiping, backstabbing bitches. And sure enough, I found some of them in there. But you know what else I found in those women's stag meetings? I found some very warm, wonderful women who literally saved my life. Who literally saved my life. Now, you're going to find that the men can help you with your spiritual program. Ah, yes. However, I would suggest, if you're new, that you wait for a while before you let them help you with your spiritual program and get a good, firm, basic program, because believe me, honey, you're going to need it. Well, I remember, you know, Eunice was a hard, oh, God, she was so hard with me. used to just tear me up, you know. But... I remember one time when we were at one of these women's stag meetings, and she and it was after the meeting was over, and she always had her little entourage sitting around her, and I was one of them. And we were sitting there discussing what had been going on at the meeting that particular night. And uh, I think that what I did, I think I threatened her with getting drunk again. And she looked over at me, and she said, Let me tell you something, honey. She said, If you decide to drink again... She said, I want you to know I'm not responsible for that. And I thought about it, and I thought, well, oh, okay, I'll accept that. And then I must have had a few more words with her, and I don't remember exactly what the conversation was. But anyway, she got up from the table real quick. She was quite angry at me. And she stopped, as she started across the floor, and she turned around, and she came back, you know. And she picked up my book. I always carried my book with me. And she looked down at me. And she said, I'm responsible. She said, by the way, she said, I remember you're suicidal, too. And she said, I want you to know if you decide to get drunk and commit suicide, I'm not responsible for that either. And I said, well, what the hell are you responsible for? Then you're my sponsor. I mean, they got to be good for something, you know. And that was when she looked down at me and she picked up this book and she shook it right in my face. She hit me right across the bridge of the nose with it. I'd like to think she really didn't mean to do that, you know. And she said, I'm responsible for helping you to learn what's in this book and how to apply it to your life. She said, that's what I'm responsible for as a sponsor. Well, I didn't have any argument after we went through that because my nose was kind of smart and too, you know, and I didn't know what else she might do. So I just kept my mouth shut at that point. But anyway, you know, uh, she had also told me, she said, uh, uh, Beverly, she said, I don't want you making any major decisions. She said, and 
I want you to get a good, firm, basic foundation of this program, and I don't want you emotionally involved. Now, when I first came in the program, getting emotionally involved had a different connotation than it has today. Uh, emotionally involved then meant because we always did all of our own 12-step work. And uh, a lot of times uh, people, and especially people that were new on the program that were also making 12-step work to the drunks that were out there, they'd get all involved with them and, and the drunk would go get drunk and, and the sober member of AA would go get drunk with them, you know. So uh, either that or something would happen. So they were telling us not to get emotionally involved with the newcomers is what they were saying. Uh, and uh, so anyway... Uh, she had a little addendum on that, and she said, by the way, honey, she said, there's a clubhouse here in the valley, and she said, it's called the Allen Nest, and she said, I don't want you going around there because there's a bunch of dirty old men helping women with their spiritual program. Y'all got some of those dirty old men around here, too, huh? God, I'm glad to hear that. Well, you know, for the newcomers in here, and uh, some of you have been here for a little while, and you've gotten sponsors, I know that some of you guys in here are gurus, right? Have we got to, can anybody point some gurus out to me? Okay, I know we got a few. Okay, one of the first things they tell you, newcomer, men, is to stay away from the women for a while because behind every slip there's a skirt, right? It's one of the first things you tell them? Sure you do. Honey, don't sit over there and laugh, because behind every slipper there's a zipper, too. You know. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, Lord. Lordy, Lord. Anyway, I got back into this, this book here. And, uh, you know, uh, one of the things that I began to hear was the word principle. The words values, the words morals, and I thought, oh, uh, so I had to learn what those were, and, and I'm not very good at English, so I had to look things up in a dictionary because my sponsor told me, she said, don't assume the meanings of words. She said, look them up, find out what they mean to you in context with this book, in context with this book. So I began to look up words. Now, being an alcoholic, I found that I really don't do things right or wrong necessarily. What I do them is backwards, just absolutely backwards from the so-called normal people, whatever they are. And uh, uh, anyway, what I found out was that I would get a feeling from something somebody had said or done. And from that feeling, I would react to it. And then maybe a couple of weeks later, I'd think about it, <laughs> you know. Normal people, they think first, then they take an action. They take an action, and from that action, they get a feeling. It's totally backwards, because the feelings I usually got were bad feelings, and I would react to them. And when I learned how to stop and think, you know, then I took an action, and usually it was a positive action, and then usually ended up with a real good feeling, with a real good feeling. So anyway, I'm going to start out that way tonight. I'm going to start backwards, right? I'm going to start. I haven't got well yet. <laughs> May never. Anyway, I'm going to start with the 12th step. It says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we try to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. Well, let me tell you what a principle is to me. A principle is the action that I take upon a daily basis. It's the way I live my life on a daily basis. And, and I remember people saying, you know, these are the three essentials. This is how the program works. And I thought, what are the essentials and what is how this program works? So I got back into the first step. I started with that one. And in the first step, it says, you know, that I'm powerless over alcohol, that my life has, has become unmanageable. My life became unmanageable because I drank too damn much, you know. Uh, I don't believe that my life is unmanageable today. My life was unmanageable because I drank. See, so I can't use the cop-out, 
well, I'm drunk, so therefore I didn't know what I was doing, you know, and I didn't really mean it, you know. But today I hear so many people and they, they say, well, I'm an alcoholic and I've got a disease, so therefore you should excuse me, you know, when I kill somebody or rob somebody or hurt your feelings or anything else. I don't believe in that. You know, I really don't believe in it. And besides, you know, anyway, going from there. I was an alcoholic. I was powerless over alcohol. My life was unmanageable. The minute I was honestly able to admit that I was an alcoholic and powerless over it, that my life had become unmanageable because of it, there somehow came a strength in me that I had never had before when it came to alcohol. And I was able to put the alcohol aside. So I had learned the principle of honesty. And in the next step where it says, you know, we came to believe that he could restore us to sanity. My husband had said I hadn't gotten there yet, but he said he had hope for me. So, you know, I keep on trying. But anyway, in that step, it says we don't have to buy it all right now. All we have to do is just simply keep an open mind. That's all it's asking us to do. Now, I began to hear the word spiritual. And I thought, oh, Lord, here we go. We're into religion in here. And I knew religion was not going to work. There was too many Catholic priests in there, too many little nunny bunnies running around, you know, and men from the other cloth, and I knew religion wasn't going to work. And beside that, I'd tried it. I had tried every church I could think of, and it didn't work for me. But you see, again, I went back to my dictionary, and I looked up the word spiritual. And what I found for me that worked for me was real simple. It says, being spiritual is simply an elevation of thought and feeling. Well, God, from the kind of a drunken woman I was when I got here to you people, and when I set aside the juice, I automatically had a spiritual awakening, you know, and had an elevation of thought and feeling. So now I've got honesty and open-mindedness. I've got two new principles, two new values in my life that I didn't have there before because of my drinking. And then I went into the third step. Now, the first two steps our book says is the cornerstone, which is the very basis, the very foundation of our program. And that's what I want you newcomers to get before you get spiritual help. <coughs> anyway, I went into my third step. And in that third step, you know, when I made that decision to turn my life and my will over, you know, it said that in this step is where we walk through the arc way of freedom. Freedom from the bondage of self. One of the first things that we have to do is to realize that I cannot run the show anymore. I cannot run the show anymore. I have now got a new boss, if you will, a new director. And when I do, or if I do, his will, then I found that he provides everything I need. Just everything I need. All I have to do is to try to bring my will into alignment with his. It's really simple. But God, it's so hard to do, you know, because I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it, right? And if I try to think of what he would want me to do, I can't do what I want to do when I want to do it most of the time. I'm going to get well. I really am. Someday. (laughs) Maybe next year. But anyway... So I now have found another principle, you see, because I became willing. Remember I told you fear and pain was always my strongest motivator? I had a lot of fear going for me and a lot of pain. You know, a pain in trying to change and the fear that if I didn't, I was going to end up back on the juice again. And from where I come from, I never, ever want to have to go back there again. Never, ever. So I now have honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness, the three essentials of Alcoholics Anonymous. I can't. He can, so let him, you know, so let him. Well, I, um, I had gone over to this clubhouse that my sponsor had suggested that I not go to just once. And the only reason I went over there was because I had a baby who was over there, and her husband had called me up and, and he told me she was glued to the seat over there, and he couldn't get her to come home to feed the kids. So I went over to get her. And I remember she said, well, just wait until the meeting's over and then then you can take me home. So while I was waiting, I decided that I would share a little bit. You know, I didn't want to waste an hour and a half while I was waiting for. And I remembered talking uh, about how subservient and submissive I was when I got here to you people. 
Now, I come up with these words because my mom and my daughter and all of us had been going through the dictionary like we had been taught. And um, that was the words they come up with for me that I had uh, was very submissive and subservient. So while I was at the meeting that day, I was sharing it, you know, and, and the group there. And this man was sitting there, you know, and he was drumming on the table. You ever had him do that to you when you're talking, you know? It's like, why don't you shut up, honey? You ain't got nothing to say, and I've got something really important to say, you know? So anyway, when I did finish and and they called on him, he pointed his finger at me and he said, Lady, he said, did you ever stop to think that all you ever really was was just a kiss-ass? Well, he hurt my feelings. But I got even with him. It took me a little while. But I married him. <laughs> so you guys better be careful because we women do have a way of getting even. Might take us a little while, but we'll get there. Anyway, uh, I, w- I was just having a heck of a time. And... Uh, I had, um, when I first got here, the first thing I wanted to do was to get a divorce because I was married to a man who drank like I did. But you see, that wasn't the reason I wanted the divorce. The reason I wanted the divorce because along with his drinking, he was also a great womanizer. And I had faced that fact when I sobered up and I found out that he was really doing what I thought he was doing all the time, which he had been telling me that there was something the matter with me. You know, and I believed him. But anyway, when I when I got sober and I realized that all this was going on, first thing I wanted to do was to get a divorce. In fact, that was the reason that I had chosen Eunice as a sponsor. She was a real man hater. And uh, I was very submissive and subservient. I want you all to know that since I married my, my husband, I haven't been that way since. Uh, anyway... Uh, I I told Eunice I wanted to get a divorce, and she said, no, no, no major decisions in your first year. She said, it takes at least a year to get this booze out of your mind and out of your body. And she said, you know, you don't know what you're doing yet. You're not sober enough. You're still having drunken thinking, you know. And the book talks about it. You know, I hear a lot of people saying, well, they've got an alcoholic personality. I don't know what an alcoholic personality is, but I do know what an alcoholic mind is. And the book talks about it. It said it's that kind of thinking that we get preceding that first drink. That this time it's going to be different. You know, this time it's going to be different. But anyway, uh, she wouldn't let me get the divorce. And she told me, she said, Beverly, you're sicker than most. And, and she said, usually we tell them to wait a year. But she said, in your case, I want you to wait for three. I, I kid you not, that's what she told me. And I'm glad that she recognized, you know, that I needed to wait three years. But anyway, after three years, uh, I, I had had enough. And uh, I had begun to feel that I was certainly worth more than, than what I was getting from that marriage in him. And uh, so I told Eunice, I didn't ask her, I said, Eunice, I'm getting a divorce. And she said, fine. You know, she gave me permission. And uh, so I, I figured I'd better get to my psychiatrist. I hadn't seen him in all the time I was here because, you know, just, just a few months after I came here, I came here on September the 10th of 1965. And uh, he, uh, I continued on with him. Uh, and along about Christmas time, I decided that I really didn't need him anymore. And I didn't know why, but I just knew in my heart I didn't need him anymore. And so I went up to tell him I didn't need him anymore. And he said, well, Beverly, he said, uh, I've been thinking along those same lines. And he said, I don't think you do need me anymore. And I said, well, now, wait a minute. You know, I said, the holidays are coming up. Maybe I better keep you until after the holidays. You know, your first holidays sober are pretty rough, you know, or at least you think they're going to be, you know. But anyway, uh, so we agreed that I would stay with him until after the holidays. Uh, but I told him, I said, uh, you know, I'm, go- I'm going to get a divorce. And uh, uh, when I had gone back to him after three years of sobriety, but, you know, he asked me when I told him I didn't need him anymore, and he, he was real serious about it. And he said, Beverly, he said, what did you find there in Alcoholics Anonymous that you did not find with us? And, you know, without even giving it a thought, it just automatically came out of my mouth. I found God. You know, I found God. Because I remember when I was in that nut ward, I walked around, and I'd take my hand like this, and I'd tell the psychiatrist, 
Aren't you going to do something about this hole I've got in my stomach? Look here at this big hole. And I mean, I thought they had me on a lot of medication. I thought, you know, you think you're hallucinating from booze. You should try it from the medication they put you on in there. I thought I, I really had a hole and I really thought that I could put my hand through it. But somehow when I came to you people, that hole filled up. It just filled in. It just filled in. And anyway, I, uh, uh, I, I told him I was going to get a divorce. And uh, he said, great, it's about time. You know, because I could remember something he used to say to me when I used to sit up there and complain about all the problems I was having in my life. And especially about that guy I was married to. And he'd look over at me and he'd say, well, why do you allow him? Why do you let him? You know, and this applies to the men, too. You know, uh, we women are not the only ones that done this. And I wouldn't say anything because I didn't know the answer to it. But I'd sit there and think, you know, and I'd think, well, you know, you crazy nut. You know, I can't stop him. Now, I don't know why the psychiatrist didn't know that. Uh, but uh, then he'd tell me, well, Beverly, you're going to have to change. And I looked at him and I said, well, well, why should I have to change? He's the one that's doing that. And he'd say, because you're the one that's bothering. You know, and it reminded me of my husband. He, you know, uh, I was very fastidious, you know, and everything had a place and it was supposed to be in its place. And that's the way I kept it, you know, when I was drinking. And, and after I got the divorce and I married this man... He was one of those kind that if he opened up a drawer, it stayed open. If he dropped something, that's where it stayed, you know. And God helped me when he'd come in from work because he'd start dropping his clothes, you know, all the way in from the service porch to the bathroom. And usually by the time he got to the bathroom, which our bathroom was right by the front door, and that's where he dropped his shorts. And then, you know, and then the towels would be all over the floor and everything. And people would walk in and I'd get embarrassed, you know, his shorts laying there in the middle of the hallway by the bathroom floor and one day I just had had enough and I was just embarrassed to no tears and I went stomping in there to him after the guest had left and I said what do you mean by leaving your shorts laying there on the floor you know and I said what are they doing there and he thought for a minute and he looked up at me and he kind of had this lopsided grin on his face and he said they're just laying there waiting to start an argument, honey. <laughs> oh, boy, I'll tell you. Well, I remembered what I was told, you know, and he used to tell me, he'd say, Honey, I'm going to let it bother you until it bothers me, and then I'll do something about it. And I began to understand what that psychiatrist said, you know. So I began to pick up his shorts. <laughs> And then uh, the time came when I wasn't willing to pick him up anymore, pick up his clothes or pick up his towels, and I just left him lay there. And we had piles and piles, and finally he ran out of shorts. And he said to me one day, I don't have any clean shorts. I said, well, they're in there on the floor. I said, if you'll put them in the washing machine, we'll wash them. You know, it took me a while. I'm a slow learner, you know, but I, I learned. Anyway, uh, getting back to where I was before I got sidetracked here, I uh, decided to get this divorce. And it was agreed upon. My sponsor said it was okay. My psychiatrist said it was okay. And everybody agreed that I should get it. So I did. Now, remember when I told you that my sponsor had told me to stay away from that clubhouse over there where those guys were helping people with their spiritual program? <laughs> Hell, I wasn't dumb. You know that's the first place I headed when I got that divorce. <laughs> I sat in there, and I was just like a little kid in the candy store. And I looked around, and I said, I'll have him, 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 and him. <laughs> And, oh, God, I knew I was in trouble. I was in heat again. <laughs> now, I'm going to talk about something which I do not believe is talked about enough in this program. And it's a word that I want to throw up every time I hear it, and it's the word is relationships. Oh, God. We lose more people in our program behind the so-called relationships than any other reason. That is their justification and their excuse to go back out and drink again. And if you say anything to them, it's, but I'm willing to pay the price. Because I'd say, you know, if, if he splits out or she splits out, you know, are, are you willing to sit still and pay the price? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And they are until the time comes to pay the price. Then they're not willing. They're off and they're running, you know. And when they come back, well, she or he, you know, 
I don't care whether you're six or 96, man, woman, or child, when you walk through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, you got two problems, and that's bad breath and a broken heart. Booze and sex in plain language. And as I said, I like to speak up plain language so that you won't misunderstand what I'm saying. Anyway, I knew I was in trouble because I was in heat. And I didn't quite know what to do about it, but I figured I had better do something, you know, because one more time fear and pain came into my life, and I was afraid if I got in trouble, you know, behind one of these relationships that I'd end up back on the juice again. So I decided it was time to take a fourth step. Now, in that fourth step, I learned the principle of truth, because when I took it, It said, in here, we're going to do some fact-facing and some fact-finding. So, I got down with some truths about the things. Now, at this particular time, the inventory I took was on my relationships, okay? What I found, the kind of men that I was so very attracted to that turned me on, if you will, he was good-looking, he was fun-loving, Hard drinking, woman chasing. God darn, what a challenge, huh, gals? You bet. I heard somebody else talking about that earlier today. And when we get them, we don't let go. Why don't we let go, girls? We all know why we don't get let go. Because when we do, she's going to get them. You guys do the same thing. Don't sit there and smirk. I've held some of you in, you in my arms Have you cried over some of these little affairs you've been practicing your principles in. <laughs> but I begin to recognize. You know, and when she gets some girls, we always know that they're going to become sober, loyal, hardworking, faithful, Husbands, right? <laughs> what a joke that is. <laughs> Women do the same thing that these guys do. There's a lot of barracudas out there, guys. Watch out for them. In here, same thing. You know, they haven't made those changes yet that are necessary. Anyway, I, um, I got to thinking about this, and I didn't know quite what to do, but I knew I had to do something. But now I begin to recognize what part of my problem was. Part of my problem. Now, you know, i got to tell you a little joke. Uh, bear, just bear with me for a few minutes. There was this little doggie, and he lived with a family that lived up by a railroad track up on a little hill over here. And anyway, he woke up this one morning, and it was a beautiful spring day, sort of like this morning was, you know. And he wanted to go play. And he gave a yip, and he scratched on the door, and the owner come and let him out. And he ran up on this little hill here where this railroad track ran along. And he was running along the railroad track, and he was sniffing at the weeds, and he was sniffing at flowers, and his little ears were just blowing back in the breeze, you know, and he was having the most wonderful time. And a train come along and cut off a little tiny weeny piece of his tail. Well, he lit out a yip and he turned around to see what happened to that little tiny piece of tail. And a train come along from the other direction and cut off his head. Now, honey, don't you be like that little dog and lose your head over a little tiny piece of tail. Okay? (laughs) You know, I just had to tell that. Because God knows that's what we do, isn't it? Come on, be truthful. You betcha it is. Anyway, here I am, and I'm not knowing exactly what to do. <laughs> so I've got my, my first four steps down now, and I'm into truth. And I don't know exactly, you know, what to do at this point. And I kept hearing the word God back in that third step. And, and again, I kept tying God and, and spiritual to religion. But I remembered something that I had read as a child. And it was in the Bible. And it was in red. And I was taught that when anything was in the Bible in red, it was God talking. I hope I'm not offensive. Anyway, what I thought it said was, I have created man in my image. And for man, I have created woman. And woman is to follow man. 
And I thought about that for a little while when I remembered it, and I thought, now, I followed three of those son-of-a-guns, and look where I ended up at, the Nut House and Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, there was something wrong there somewhere. So I decided I'd go back in this book, and I'd try to see if I could find, you know, what, what was in my head. And I found very similar things, and what I found was this. It says, I have created man in my image, and for man I have created woman as a helpmate. And woman is to follow man, and man follows God. And you see, not once in those three men had I ever thought to choose a man who followed God. Now, I met my husband in AA after I got that divorce. About three years after I got the divorce. Now, I had seen him back over in that meeting. That's the same man, you see, who had told me I was nothing but a kiss ass. So I, you know, was thinking about it all those years. And I finally found my opportunity. And anyway, uh, him and I married. We met and married. And I lost this man last July. And, you know, every time... I start feeling sorry for myself because, you see, the book tells me that in order to get sober, there has to be a change in thought and attitude, in thought and attitude. And I used to go to this home group of mine. It's still my home group when I first got here. And, you know, there weren't many women in AA at the time when I came in. And uh, most of the time when I'd go there, there'd be nothing but a bunch of old men. Oh. God, I used to think, oh, is this what it takes to be sober? I guess I'll just keep coming back. But, you know, I, 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 I was either, every time I'd open my mouth, they'd stick their foot in it. And I'd go home from that meeting either cussing or crying. And I remember my shoulder on this side was always sore. And I never could figure out why it was sore. I was about a year sober before it finally occurred to me why my shoulder was always sore. There was this one old big tall guy, it was about six foot six, bony as they come, had the longest boniest fingers, and he used to stand at the door and catch me before I could get out of there. And he'd jab me right on my collarbone with that long bony finger. And he'd say, you'd better have an attitude of gratitude or you're going to end up back on the juice again, honey. You know, well, when I would think, when I'd wake up in the morning, you know, there was something else my husband used to say that I just dearly loved. You know, a lot of people would say, I had a bad day, I had a bad day. And my husband would say, God doesn't make bad days. We get bad attitudes about good days, you know. And when after I had lost him, and, and I would wake up in the morning, and this loneliness would crawl over me because I knew he wasn't going to be there in my day to share. And I would get to feeling sorry for myself. I'd think about what he said, that God doesn't make bad days. I was just having a bad attitude. And so I learned to turn it around, you know, and, and I always told him, and I'm so grateful that I did, that I was one of the luckiest women in the world that God had brought him into my life. And we had 23 wonderful years together, 23 wonderful years. And I try to remember this instead of crawling down into my self-pity that I so want to do. But, you know, uh, he told me, he said, honey, he said, one of the things that you don't want to do is to isolate yourself. And he said, the other thing that you want to always remember is to keep a sense of humor. Because he said, these two things are going to pull you through this. And I remember just a few days before he died when I had uh, the doctors had seen him at the hospital. We had already made the arrangements that he was not... To, uh, to stay in a hospital. He hated hospitals. He said people die in hospitals. <laughs> anyway, we had talked about all this, and I had promised him I wouldn't let him keep him in a hospital, that I would bring him home and, and, and he could be with me and, and with our friends and family. And uh, just a few days before he died, he, he sat up on the side of the bed, and he said, well, honey, he said, the doctors have done everything they can. And he said, uh, God's calling. God's calling. So, uh, you know, uh, another funny thing. He, he gave a talk um, in January at a place called the Rafters, a clubhouse over in New Hall, which is fairly close to our home. And when the doctors had told us that he was going to die, 
uh, the doctors had told me to make arrangements. And there's a cemetery close to where we live, and I had lost my mother, and we had buried my mother there. And then just a few years after that, my brother was killed. And we had buried my brother, and he was right up above where my mama was. And each time, we were always going to get lots in there close to them, you know, so that we could all be together. My mother was an alcoholic, too, by the way, and this is my mother's big book that I carry with me. But anyway, we hadn't done it. You know, we're like everybody else. We kept postponing and postponing. So when I went over to, to get a lot over close to my mother and brother, there wasn't any. And uh, I was so hurt and disappointed. I said, well, I'll have to think about, you know, what I want to do. So my friend and I, who was with me, uh, we had turned around to walk out. And at that moment, the woman had answered the phone. And she said, wait just a minute, Beverly. And uh, I didn't know what it was all about. There was a woman living back east who had bought a lot in that cemetery in that particular area who had a daughter back east and her daughter had talked her into moving there and the woman was selling the lot but it was only one lot but anyway the the lady there at uh, at the cemetery told me she said we can stack you okay get that one on top of the other and I hesitated to tell my husband this because they had only given him two months and then they got him into remission. So, of course, the bill come in because I'd put it on a charge card, right? And uh, anyway, so I had to tell him, you know, that this is what I had done and, and this is the way we were going to be buried. And so when he was talking at this particular meeting, he was, he was telling them about, you know, his wife getting this lot where we were going to be stacked. And he said, you know, he said, I got to thinking about that. And he said... I'm darned if I'm going to go first and have her on top of me for the rest of eternity, you know. <laughs> you know, this, this man had a wonderful sense of humor. Now, I liken love unto sobriety, and this is the way it fits together for me. You know, when things are going well, it's easy to love. When things are tough, it's tougher to love. But you see, that's what love is all about. That's what society is all about. When the things get tough, that's when our program really begins to work. Because we've got all these examples before us showing us how. Leading the way. And in love, there is no accusations. We try not to hold resentments. It, um, it's almost, uh, how can I word this? We don't take pleasure in other people's sins or wrongdoings, but we delight in the truth. And we're always ready to excuse, to have hope and trust, and to be able to endure whatever comes our way. And you see, love never ends. It never comes to an end. And as I close here tonight, I want to wish for each and every one of you all of the things that I have found. Because you see, in this book, one more time, there is an answer. And it says, just to the extent that we do as we think God would have us and then humbly rely upon him, does he enable us to match calamity? with serenity all the things that I have found here is the joy the frustrations and the angers the sorrows the happinesses the peace and the contentment because you see these things are life and life for me I have found right here with you in Alcoholics Anonymous thank you